This is Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff, the podcast where spiritual directors talk about stuff. How do we experience God? How do we evolve in our understanding of faith? How do we expand our picture of God's love? These questions and more will guide our talks. Here are your hosts, Chris Aker and Maggie Schlosser. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Spiritual Directors Talking About Stuff. I am Christopher Aker, and my co-host Maggie Schlosser is also here with me. We're very excited today because we have a special guest on with us today. We have Mark Gregory Karras with us. Uh, Mark is an ordained pastor, a licensed marriage and family therapist, a speaker, musician, adjunct professor, and all-around biophilic. He is the author of Divine Echoes, Reconciling Prayer with the Uncontrolling Love of God, Season of Heartbreak, Healing for the Heart, Brain, and Soul, and Religious Refugees, Deconstructing Towards Spiritual and Emotional Healing. Welcome, Mark, and thank you for being with us today. So great to be here. Thank you, Christopher. Thank you, Maggie. We're going to talk a little bit about, well, hopefully a lot about um, Religious Refugees today, and um, which is his latest book. We're going to be diving into and discussing uh, deconstruction. In this book, Religious Refugees, Mark explores this disorienting faith shift through the lens of psychological research, theology, philosophy, and the real-world experiences of those who are going through and have gone through this arduous and confusing journey of deconstruction. In our last podcast episode, we discussed Janet Hagberg's and Robert Gulick's stages of the faith journey, and we mentioned that we think deconstruction probably occurs within stage four and the wall. Uh, so today we're going to focus on stage four and the wall and look at how deconstruction can look while you're going through it. In Mark's book, he identified eight stations of the deconstruction and reconstruction journey. So we're going to dive into those stations and discuss what they look like and focus specifically on how uh, spiritual direction can be a valuable resource as you're going through those stations. So Mark, would you mind giving us a little background about your deconstruction journey just to kind of frame and, and give our listeners a little bit of background? Sure. I will give you the very, very, very condensed version. So deconstruction... Hmm. I would say that I was saved uh, in the traditional sense of being saved pretty uh, dramatically at the age of around 21. And so that's when I was saved into a oneness Pentecostal church. So uh, they didn't believe in the Trinity, uh, only folks who spoke in tongues. Uh, the initial evidence uh, of receiving the Holy Spirit were saved. And there were a lot of lot of rules um, and regulations in, in that experience. And so, of course, before that is my whole story of how I got there, which is pretty wild. And that's filled with at least my family background, drugs and violence and death and all kinds of wild things. So getting saved in the Oneness Pentecostal Church, then getting out of that. Um, so I was in there about four, about four years or so basically running away to a Christian college because I wasn't allowed to go to school. It was not, uh, I mean, that's a whole story of the authoritarian leadership that was going on back then. So I, I was so bound. I was so, uh, man, I was so oppressed, even as a, a Christian. 
I mean, I couldn't even drink soda because I thought I would defile the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's how like rigid and legalistic uh, the environment was. And that's what I internalized as well. Ran away to a Christian college that was more Christian Missionary Alliance. So that's pretty middle of the road. Uh, then that's where I encountered some vineyard folks experiencing Ava and Ava's love. And that totally rocked my world. And then sort of to fast forward a little bit, getting out of all of that, I wound up being um, a youth pastor slash worship pastor in a Southern Baptist church. I wound up being, being ordained as a Southern Baptist. I did work in a Korean Presbyterian church for four years uh, before that. And so then, uh, then I just started deconstructing everything. I'm not exactly sure why. I just was an inquisitive soul. I think maybe um, after my mom's death and some other things, it just kind of flew me into this uh, of just questioning absolutely everything. And then, of course, out of the seeds of that deconstruction was getting out of the Oneness Pentecostal Church into this other Christian environment. And, and I, w I had panic attacks. I like I literally said to myself, what is true? Who is God? What does it mean to be a Christian? All these other Christians are praying. I was so guarded. I, my whole internal world, I literally thought I was going to go crazy. So, man, it's, it's so many seeds of deconstruction. Yeah, I don't know. Um, that, that's sort of a jumping into it. Would you say that you were thrust into deconstruction? Or did you willingly walk into it? It's such a long, it's a road. It's such a long journey of the slow process of finally getting to the point where I said, yes, I am deconstructing. Because the seeds were sown, getting out of the one Pentecostal church, going to another Christian environment, but then being ordained Southern Baptist. And how the heck I got there, I don't know. But the, their view of the Bible and view of faith. And I remember I was joking around and I said, you know, I was with the, the youth and I said, um, I wasn't feeling well. I said, I'm just feeling like ship today. I said ship, but that got out to the pastor. And then we had a big meeting of my saying ship. And so slowly kind of saying, man, and like the Bible is absolutely perfect, infallible, inerrant. And I started thinking about, well, what about divine violence? And I think once I started getting into divine violence, I think that was really where it just opened up a whole can of worms. Because in order to question divine violence, you have to question inerrancy. And in order to question inerrancy, you have to take a big leap of faith um, because it's so scary. You're you're moving away from your tribe, which from a, you know a neuroscience perspective, it's dangerous. You know, if we did that back in the day, that could literally mean we would die, right? To be either kicked out from the tribe or either to to walk out in some way or being asked to leave it was basically a death sentence. So our brain thinks of it that way. That's why changing beliefs is such a, a Herculean feat when it comes to changing our religious orientations and, and beliefs and stuff. Yeah. And it sounds like you went from one set of strict theological religious rules in the oneness church to another set where you couldn't even make a joke that said the word ship. 
and all these rules just had to be kept. What was that like for you to switch from one set of rules to another and then eventually deconstruct all of these rules? Yeah, it's so wild because there there were streams. Like, thank goodness for the Vineyard Church. You know, that really, um, it gave me an experiential foundation that no matter what wacky beliefs and things were, you know, the hypocrisy and anything else I saw in the Christian faith, I, I and even when I first became saved and had a really deep experiential encounter with, with God, that, that sort of rooted me. Like no matter, and even to this day, you know, I'm not too fond of the religion, if you will, of Christianity in its truest sort of fundamentalist flair or evangelical flair. But it's the experience of Christ and of love that sort of keeps me grounded. But it, it was tough, it, you know, as far as the rules. And that's why it was so, because then I think when I think of my Pentecostal experience, it was more the rules. And then the Southern Baptist was more, I felt sort of the beliefs about the, the word of God and about inerrancy and about, you know, don't go here theologically. And so, yeah, you know, of course, Pentecostal had their beliefs, but that's what I think of when I, in my experience, I had to deconstruct the, the, the ecclesial, the church, the, the, the ways, the rules of, of Pentecostalism, and then eventually the belief system sort of, of Southern Baptist church. Although I, I must say I was probably a little rebel, even, you know, that they knew that, you know, we need to be careful of Mark yet. Well, We'll take them through the ordination process. Little would do they know where I would be today. But that's really interesting how you you differentiated between the rules of the Oneness Church and then the the beliefs of the Southern Baptist. I also was Southern Baptist growing up. I don't remember it being very rule oriented. So so that kind of that does jive with my my uh, recollection of Southern Baptist as well. But it is heavily heavily uh, focused on doctrine and. So, yeah, what you have to believe certain doctrines or, well, you're probably not saved if you don't, you know, believe all the certain doctrines that they say you have to believe. Going into that um, deconstruction, there has to be a whole lot of fear. You know, there's there's a lot of fear involved in, in making that first leap of faith. What was your experience in, in kind of overcoming that fear? The fear, this is intense dread. This is anxiety. This is disorientation confusion, uh, fears of rejection and abandonment, things so deep to the core of who I was. I mean, I would cry. I would be so anxious. I would be, you know, it affects, we know that it affects my sleep and sometimes what I eat and um, maybe not go out as much with certain people. And it was very, very difficult. And what's what's related to this that's not often talked about is the disorientation and the experience of that, you know, going somebody somewhere else on the journey, but also linking that to my past with my dad, right? We don't realize that, you know, some people have a hard time differentiating between the spiritual disorientation and then we get angry at the church and the church beliefs and the rules even. But then when I think about what it's triggering deep in my core, it's triggering the deep sense of fear I had with my dad, the, the ultimate rule giver. It's triggering the deep sense of abandonment, of not having a mother 
who was tethered to drugs. Like, so it's so interrelated and interconnected. It's so important to piece out, especially as a therapist working with folks. So it, it's so, it's so um, nuanced. So in other words, yes, I'm feeling the dread of leaving my spiritual community, but I'm also getting triggered because of triggering my core wounds of abandonment and rejection and fear to have with my parents. So it was very deep, very intense. And this is the true sense of what it means to be disoriented. So you were, you've made a lot of connections between your family of origin and your experiences with the church and even adding this awareness of all of your emotions on top of all of that. What was that like for you? How long did that take for you to start to kind of put these puzzle pieces together? Tell us about that. See, I, I realize I'm very privileged because what helped me, and the key word is integrate, right? Sort of um, having my left brain dance well with my right brain, having my left brain, the, the meaning-making machine, logic, rationality, integrate with my more somatic, experiential, emotional parts of who I am. That has taken years, but I am privileged in that it was the crucible of a three-year degree um, in a Masters of Counseling, which is filled at that. You had to get therapy, and I was in group therapy and learning about all these different dynamics. And I, I didn't even realize that I was experienced trauma until I'm sitting. I remember very vividly being in class one day, and she's talking about fear and the fear response and how parents, you know, should be a safe haven and a secure base. And then all of a sudden, I thought of my dad and how I would walk in a room and he would just punch me in the arm, like, and leave bruises. And this went on for years. And he thought this was funny. So in my brain growing up, I didn't think this was abuse. I had no words for this, right? And then all of a sudden I started crying in class. Like, so it put words to my experience because as a kid, I experienced it as traumatic, my emotional nervous system. And I no wonder why, I, even to this day, I'm, I deal with the residue of hypervigilance and anxiety. But I, I remember just crying like that was abuse. Like my, your dad violently hitting you? And then laughing on top of it, like we're not talking about once, we're talking about dozens and dozens of times growing up. And so I think with the three years of counseling and then the three years of Masters of Divinity um, and then the whole intensive process with that, I think that helped me in such a deep level to bring integration and uh, indebted to that process. And thus with the same comfort I have received from God uh, through other people, the divine through other people, that's my call to help others integrate as well. So what I hear you say is that everyone should be in therapy and everyone should have a <laughs> spiritual director. <laughs> oh, I don't see any pitfalls to that by any means, but it is a privilege. Uh, it is a privilege, especially when finances are connected to it. And it's um, not everyone, unfortunately, has access to these kinds of resources. So I just want to acknowledge that. And wow, so so the, what you've written about in religious refugees, you've lived it, and this is you know your your there is a lot of uh, 
autobiographical parts to that book, it really it really means a lot, you know, to to read that you have gone through these stages and you know exactly how how they feel, um, and especially from the standpoint of a therapist, that's that's it's so valuable. Let's jump in to the uh, talking about the stations um, because I think I think now would be a good time to to look at the different stations of deconstruction and. Uh, what people can sort of expect to go through. Um, I know not, not everyone goes through every station, but uh, it's still very important to kind of see what, you know, what are, what are the different stations that one may go through. Uh, I'll read through them all just to kind of give you an idea of where we're going, and then we'll just take them one by one and, and talk a little bit more in detail about them. And of course, these names may or may not make sense now, but we'll talk about them later. So we have station one, which is feeling at home, and then we have station two, splinterhood, Station three is to be or not to be. Station four, returning home different. Station five will be disorientation. Station six, angstville. Seven, farewell and goodbye. And eight is extreme makeover home edition. Can I just add for your listeners, they may hear this word a little different, but I'm using the word stations, right? So... So your listeners um, may catch on to that. Why aren't you using stages? Uh, just a brief note on that. I, I do use stations as opposed to stages. And it, it may be, you know, a slight semantical uh, issue here. But it's, I, I always, for some reason, stages always, it didn't resonate with me on some level. I think it's because maybe it's just the word suggests the higher you are, the better you are. Um, although maybe it's not meant to be that way, but it, so there's something about the, the, the stages and also the, um, sometimes the lack of nuance between the, the between stages. Uh, so I'd, I'd rather use stations where it's you're journeying in a particular location for a, a period of time where you just, you're hanging out, you're there. Uh, and it's just, um, has a little different flavor for me. Uh, then stations. So let's start with the first one, which is a very good place to start. Feeling at home. I think just from bringing it back to Hagberg and Gulick, like we talked about last week, um, that is probably going to coincide best with with their stages one through three. That's kind of the the places where you you really get to know the faith and you you found your your tribe, so to speak, and it's just. You know, it feels like home. I think when you're talking about uh, the station one, I think you're right. I think it does coincide with stages one to three. And, you know, the sense of feeling at home, a sense of discipleship, the sense of knowing your community, you know, feeling a sense of uh, almost acceptance. Uh, there's something really powerful in knowing all, as one goes home uh, and you see, well, there's the picture you know, there's a picture of our parents. Uh, there's a thing in the corner, which is always there. It's, ah, oh, I'm here. I'm home. I, I can rest. I can breathe. It feels good. It feels okay. Um, I think that's important that you use the word acceptance, um, that you feel accepted at home. Uh, you had talked a little bit about um, feeling, and I, this is, I'm adding a word to this. Um, so uh, correct me if I'm putting words in your mouth, but you felt a little bit like an outcast. You used the word rebel um, when you were starting to to deconstruct. And I know that was definitely uh, one of my feelings, feeling very lonely, feeling very outcasted as I was going through deconstruction. So is the word acceptance really 
important or the feeling of acceptance? Is that really important in this first station? I think so. I think just as we in an ideal world should feel accepted by our family, uh, our, you know, earthly family, although, you know, many of us, including myself, didn't have that. But in an ideal form, home should constitute this place like using attachment theory terms, this secure base, uh, you know, the safe haven, this place where this security, it feels good. When we go there, our, our nervous system says, this is home. This is, oh, there's brother so-and-so, there's sister so Oh, we know what the pastor's going to do. So it, it's this very, um, you know, it, it feels great. We're just, I will say what's just so tricky, I think I, I talk about this briefly, that sometimes people can be in station one and still have that little reservedness of not feeling, well, maybe an insecure attachment to the extent that I'm home, but I, I almost, I still feel like I almost don't belong in some way, right? So some people like there's levels or a spectrum of like this, oh, I feel accepted and secure and they, some people do, and maybe it's 90%, maybe it's 85%, but still that 15% of, yeah, this, yeah, the, God lo- maybe loves them more. Or, you know, I still feel a little bit on the out, so to speak, but this is home, you know. So I just want to add that that's what stages don't add as much as the nuance. Or, or you know, I'd feel better if they say like stage 2.5, you know. Yeah, I think there's there's also a um, an implication of of linear progression when you're talking about stages, which is not always the case on these stations. I think you had I heard you describe once before you can kind of bounce around from station to station and, and hang out in one for a while and then bounce back to another that you've been in in the past and then try a different one and bounce right back down back to the home stage. You know, so it's it's not a linear progression, and I think also that that sense of uh, predictability is, is really reassuring in that first home station. You know, like you said, you, you always know what to expect. There's going to be the same order of service, at least in, in most churches that it is that way. And, and may I also add the, it's um, knowing that your home and your community with your God, with your beliefs, with your religious rituals, right? This is what can give that profound uh, sense of, of comfort, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so related to spiritual direction, um, I think chances are good that people within a station one are probably not going to be seeking out spiritual direction for the most part. Um, Maggie, would you agree with that? Yeah. um, And because they they feel safe where they are. And uh, so they they might not be seeking out what what they would consider an outside voice to help them wrestle through things that they don't feel that tension of wrestling. Yeah, you know, we all we always say that people tend to speak uh, seek out spiritual direction when what they've always done is no longer working for them spiritually. And in station one, well, things are working swimmingly, so you know, there's no need for someone else to to talk to. Mark, what would you say are people in the feeling at home station? What what are their greatest needs? I just thought of what we all need in the, the ABCs, the acceptance, belonging, comfort, and safety. But it, it's such a human need. It's We all need the ABCs of that level of experience. 
but the the needs, you know, I don't think maybe people are conscious of it, but it is the needs of of that place of acceptance, of belonging, of comfort and safety, and that's all provided through the omnipotent type of figure as the pastor. It's provided through the rituals. It's provided through the community. Uh, they are parented, uh, and that's. I think maybe a need that we all have in some ways, uh, maybe unconsciously is to be parented and that's what's fully provided in, in many communities to some extent or another. Mark. So what happens when people are moving from station one, the feeling at home to station two splinterhood? Can you tell us what that transition is like? And then tell us a little bit about what is splinterhood? Splinterhood. Where do we start with Splinterhood? Splinterhood, it's just a, a station where you can feel at home, to put it simply, and then all of a sudden you have these beliefs or rather ideas or thoughts. Um, for example, you're going through you know, your home and all of a sudden, I don't know, is, is all the Bible the Word of God? Or, for example, for me, a splinter would have been, you know, is divine violence, is, do we take that at face value? Is, is that sort of when God murdered or, or killed somebody or flooded the entire planet, did that really happen? Or was that sort of the culture at the time? Like, so that's where the splinters, these ideas are coming from. And, and then, uh, you know, the, no the notion of splinters, that, that pesky little piece of wood that all of a sudden starts to be an irritant, right? You start to feel like, oh, something's a little, a little off here uh, in this location of my body or this location of my mind, the symbolically is the idea. So it's basically that, right? It's, it's this station where these splinters or these thoughts, you know, for example, maybe a person believes, you know, they've learn to believe in their community, gay people will spend eternity in hell. But they're starting to, all of a sudden this idea comes, well, God loves gay people just the way they are. Oh, no, no, no. You know, and that's where some might, no, no, no. I, let's just throw that idea. Let's put that under the carpet in, in psychological terms. Let's um, repress that or let's suppress that, you know, a conscious pushing away. So that's a little bit of the station here where in Splinterhoods, where these ideas are, are starting to become a, a slight nuisance, right? We're not at sort of severe disorientation. We're not at a faith crisis. We're merely this place of these occasional beliefs are coming, sometimes outside of our conscious awareness, but occasionally inside our conscious awareness. You have a, um, a quote here from Marlene Winnell, and in that she said something about um, um, these splinters tend to happen when a quote, new life experiences do not fit with standard dogma. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's the, a really good explanation of that, uh, that cognitive dissonance that, that you start to feel, mm -hmm. you know, because reality is, I mean, your experiences is your reality. And when it doesn't line up with, with the beliefs that you've always had, then something's got to give. That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of the, the enter the station when the splinters or I love your, your, the psychological, the cognitive dissonance, or just to put it simply, the contradictory beliefs 
right? They're sort of, they cause so much discomfort and irritation to one's psyche. It's, it's becoming harder and harder to ignore. You can do it on some level, but then these contradictory beliefs in, in some of the later stages, they're, they're basically at war with each other, right? That's where a lot of this disorientation can come from. Mark, what what do people do with these splinters that come up with these questions? If they're not ready to wrestle with them, what what have you noticed about people that are kind of repressing um, these splinters that come up? Well, this is where the, the activity of suppression comes in, right? It's simply... And, uh, you know, we, we all do it. Uh, this is the beauty of defense mechanisms, right? They're at our, uh, they're in our arsenal for good reasons. They're to protect our ego. They're protect our sense of self. And many of them are unconscious, right? So what happens when we experience thoughts that are causing some discomfort? And that's when we can engage in simply denial we can engage in suppression, sort of this conscious, sort of taking the the beach ball and of idea and pushing it down in the water. But we know we can only do that for so long before the ball pops back up. But uh, for some, it's just simply being busy, you know. Yeah, I had that thought. Let me just continue my hard work and being a good Christian and, uh, you know, engaging in Bible study and whatever else that I, I do that takes me away from the uncomfortable feelings and some of the beliefs that might be emerging, right? For some, it's this defense of just going deeper into the very thing that, for example, if one believes that, uh, that being gay is an abomination before God, but yet there's this little pesky little splinter, you know, this theotoxic splinter, that maybe God, no, this this is not from, like God loves people who have a different sexual orientation than other folks, no. Um, then they might do more reading on the fact that it's anti-biblical, right? It's against the Bible. And so they push even harder or they, you know, they listen to more podcasts where the, to demonstrate the, the horror and unholiness uh, and pure debauchery of such a thing. So it's all kinds of different ways we can deal with the the uncomfortable, contradictory thoughts and the accompanying feelings. Right? It's the beauty of defenses. That's so interesting. Um, I've I've heard a lot about this idea of confirmation bias when you specifically go looking for things that help you further cement your beliefs. Um, and that's theological beliefs, that's political beliefs, that's social beliefs, all of that. Um, so it sounds to me that in the splinterhood, that um, search for confirmation bias might be stronger in the station two than at another station. Right. That, that pull, that d- desire to uh, l- let me find everything that I can to really annihilate these, these pesky uh, splinters that are, are affecting me and sometimes on an unconscious level, right? Like they don't realize it. And it's sort of like the preacher who doesn't realize that he might be gay or have, you know, homosexual inclinations. And yet this next Sunday, he's like vehemently preaching against it. You know, he, it's sort of, he doesn't even realize it. It, it. It's sort of on this deep 
unconscious level. And that's the fascinating aspect of the unconscious. I think these splinters can, can really arise at any time. And going back to Hagberg and Gulick's, Gulick's uh, stages, they can probably, they could really occur at any time throughout any of those stages, really. And then you can experience splinters even if you're, you know, past the wall and you're in stage five or six, and all of a sudden you start having another belief. But I think maybe the farther you are along in your faith journey, maybe the more splinters you've picked out or dealt with, whatever you want to call it, over the years. Um, do you think they get any easier to do to deal with, or? Yeah, I think depending where you are at and what station. The splinters, the contradictory beliefs, the cognitive dissonance could have different experiential, almost phenomenological um, ways of rearing its head. In, in other words, you're right. We can have contradictory beliefs and you know wrestle through that. But there's a difference between, for example, being at home and you know wrestling with something. You know, yeah, I'm wrestling through this these doctrines, right? These I thought this, but but here's the difference. You're home. You feel safe. You feel secure. You're not sort of in station two or really beyond where, let's say, you're in another dis, disorient station where there's extreme disorientation. You're afraid that that the community could reject you, right? So yes, you can have these this cognitive dissonance in different stations. But one could be in a station where you're you feel at home and you could do it with other people without fear of being rejected in any sense. But then in another place where this is dangerous territory, if you if you follow the lead of where this belief will take you, let's say you're a pastor, you know very well that you may not have a job. Right. So it can it can ha- sh- express itself in different soils uh, or, or, you know, different locations and have different ramifications. That's good. Yeah. Um, that does kind of, um, that's, that's a good segue, I guess, into station three. Um, but I, I do want to also mention uh, related to spiritual direction though, is, is when someone is experiencing these splinters, if they're in spiritual direction, um, I would say, you know, a good spiritual director, I don't have to say a good one, uh, a good one would would allow that person to experience the splinter and let, or, or at least help facilitate the process of them processing that, that belief system or being challenged um, as opposed to telling them, no, you need to believe this, or yes, you can, you can change, you know, it's not our job to, to tell them what they can believe. Which there's a tension there in spiritual direction when a directee is asking these questions that you feel like you, you know, the answer to. And uh, as directors, we, uh, we want to, sh- sometimes we want to share that. We want to teach the directee what the right thing to believe is. But if we do that, then we rob the splinter of being able to do the splinters work and uh, mm-hmm. to go through that journey and that process to discovering for themselves where they land on different theological topics and really at the end of the day, who is God in the midst hmm. of all these splinters? Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. I, and, and listen, I'm a therapist, so I, I'm fully aligned with that. Right. Uh, because, and here's the, the, the reason why 
I think that people are in part struggling with now, not every, uh, every occasion, but they're struggling, especially with those who are the de-churched because people have played God in their life. Right. And that they, in some ways, and this is where, you know, we have to be honest and let me talk to my own experience. I had to acquiesce to that. It's not that people were being God in my life. I wanted that God in my life. I wanted that pastor to tell me what to believe and how to believe. And so I'm complicit in this symbiotic relationship that when it came to grieving, I had to be honest about that, right? I can't just split and, you know, just kind of project all my stuff on the pastor or the church. So I had to be honest with that. But saying that, being a pastor or spiritual director, it's I'm not going to play God in your life. You have to do the hard task and I'm going to walk alongside you. To you have to be, I hate to use, you know, you have to be God in your life. And in some ways that's true in the sense of you have to take self-leadership. You have to listen to the spirit. You have to be who you are in God. And I can't dictate and say who that is for you. And that's where emerging and sort of hashtag adulting comes, comes into play. And I don't, it would be easy to just tell them, but then I I rob them of the growth and the maturity as one would uh, break open a a cocoon when the the creature is not ready to emerge. It's not in their best interest to do so. I think that's my favorite image of spiritual direction is using the idea of a caterpillar inside of a cocoon becoming a butterfly. If you open that cocoon too early, then all of the wrestling and the fighting that the caterpillar has to do within that cocoon um, is, is stopped. And so it doesn't become as strong as it can be to really build up those wings and be able to fly. So that feeling of being uncomfortable is so necessary in order to wrestle and to get strong so that you truly can fly and be strong enough to do so at the end of it. And I think that's just such a beautiful picture of a a spiritual director that allows the caterpillar to truly wrestle within the cocoon and to not break it open too early. Um, I I have experienced that uh, situation where a a previous spiritual director of mine um, was not comfortable with letting me talk about these ideas that I was trying, trying to process these splinters. Um, and, and instead they decided, you know, the best way to be a spiritual director in that situation was to regurgitate the same old things, the same old church beliefs that I've, you know, have heard all my life instead of you know, helping me work through them. Um, I have since left that spiritual director and have moved to another who is much, much better. But um, yeah, that, that experience was, was, it showed me, you know, as a spiritual director, kind of what not to do. And and, and now that I'm, I have a good director, I, I have something better to emulate. I think that's a good place to move to station three now, or at least to, to talk about station three. And that is, we uh, you've called that to be or not to be. And I think, you know, we, we've already talked a little bit about how when you're experiencing these splinters, you can choose to repress that experience or suppress it. And maybe I'll have you talk about what's the difference between repression and suppression, um, if there is, or if you choose not to suppress, you choose to just 
to walk that road um, of wherever it leads, um, which can be scary. So talk a little bit about that, Mark. Yeah, sure. In station three, to be or not to be, and I say this, uh, you know, confusion and cognitive dissonance, they're like this woodpecker, right? They're incessantly and annoyingly pecking away at our psyches, eventually forcing us to do something about it. And so this is the moment. Which path will we take to be or not to be? Will we go home? Will we be the good and faithful Christian that goes to the comfort and security of where we once were with the comfort and security of those rituals, the comfort and security of those doctrines and beliefs? Or do we overcome that anxiety in some way or at least say, I'm going to be an active adventurer and travel boldly to a new destination at an undisclosed location, right? So this is sort of that, what what path am I going to choose? Now that these uh, contradictory beliefs are coming more to the surface, what am I going to do? And just, I I know this to be true, that it is hard for people, including myself, it's hard to let go of the good that we know to receive a greater good that we don't know, right? Right. Staying home with those comfortable beliefs and doctrines of that community, it's so powerful. It's so, there's a reason why many people don't travel outside of that. But that's why people may just compartmentalize. Suppression is sort of the uh, conscious pushing down of those beliefs, where repression happens unconsciously. So maybe they just suppress, compartmentalize, push the splinters deep down into the unconscious. And I'm, I'm here. W- what can I do, Pastor? Put me in. Um, let just It's the same old, same old. They're, they're back home and they stay there for a while. Now, can they, you know, can those beliefs pop back up like that, the, the symbolic uh, ball in the pool that we push down at some other point in their life? Absolutely. But I do find there can be people who choose to compartmentalize and they could be back home for decades of just the same place, same beliefs. And so that's where station three, that's what I think about uh, to be or not to be. Whereas uh, after we get through the, to the other stations, they either return home or they, they go somewhere uh, different. Do you think that a lot of perhaps a lot of the busyness that we see in churches today, people feeling like they have to just continue to do, 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 could be them trying to ignore these splinters and suppress them. And, you know, by being busy, they don't have to deal with it or it doesn't, doesn't come up as much. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think, this this is something ubiquitous. Uh, this is something outside the church. This any any we all deal with. We have anxiety. We have uncomfortable feelings. We have rage. We have lust. We have pride. Then we don't want to deal with those things. So then we engage our defenses. Right. So this is like just a, a very human thing. But your notion of busyness, right, or avoidance can be one strategy that we use to avoid, whether it's, you know, the pesky contradictory splinters or whether I want to avoid the reality of my marriage 
or whether I want to push down the fact that I'm lusting after another woman and I don't want to be conscious of that. Um, and I just push that down, push that down until eventually maybe it does catch up to me. Uh, we all, we're all avoiding uh, our experience, our emotional experiences, our vast array and complexity of what it means to be human. And so avoidance, busyness, hustle and bustle, man, that's one really good way. And it's so weird because, and that's where spiritual bypassing comes into play that, you know, one can perceive, wow, they're so holy. They're, they're reading the Bible more. They're, you know, now they're going to three services a week, you know, now they're doing the pantry service and they're doing this missions trips. And, but we, we do know, uh, for example, the, I think that was it the BTK killer. <laughs> he was an elder in the church, right? Bind, torture and kill. Like you could be a psychopath in the church doing, but not having the spirit and not surrendering to what the spirit wants to do in your emotional realm and your emotional uh, reservoir there. So, and that's why Pete Scazzaro's work, you know, you, you can't be spiritually healthy if you're not emotionally healthy. Like it, it, there, it doesn't work that way. If you're spiritually healthy it means you will be emotionally healthy. There's no dichotomy there. Well, and part of that that Pete talks about is that understanding and also accepting where you are and then looking for a growth trajectory that that takes you someplace healthier. So this knowing who you are, but also knowing God just is this really important cycle that you can't really separate. It's so important to be on that journey of self-awareness so that you know who you are and who God is so that you can be emotionally healthy and uh, spiritually healthy together. Yes. And may I share this for me, this is where the simplicity of the greatest commandment comes in, right? And this is where the Lorraine cross, if, if you're, you know, just to give a little explanation of the Lorraine cross, you know, our, our typical crosses have one kind of cross beam. The Lorraine cross has two. And so I think of it as, you know, loving God, loving self, loving others, and allowing yourself to be loved as well. It's all interrelated. And to me, that brings about the abundant life that Jesus talked about, that if you're kind of in relationship, if there's vitality with me and God, me and myself, me and my community, and I put community also a relationship with the earth, right, and other creatures, there is this beautiful sense of integration and harmony that, that comes. Whereas if you don't have one aspect of the beam, whether it's the vertical God or the, the horizontal self or others, you're going to have some kind of lopsided emotional spiritual experience on the earth. When uh, someone in spiritual direction is, um, is in this point of, of teetering between, you know, to be or not to be, you know, that can be a, a, a difficult experience for the director. Um, and I mean, of course, it's difficult for the directee, but I think for the director, it's, it's difficult too, because, you know, we, we want to see them grow. We want to see them move into a new place of wholeness um, or closer to, to wholeness. Um, but again, you know, it, it's, it's not our timeline. It's, it's God's timeline. And, you know, if, if that person then decides to go back to the comfort of home, then that has to be okay with us. And, and we just have to say, okay, God, 
it's not the time yet, you know, um, that person's not ready. Um, and then we just continue to, to, to sit with them. Um, alternatively, if they do decide to, to take that leap of faith, um, you know, I, I think at least I would secretly inwardly be cheering and saying, yay, God, I'm so glad that they're going to take this step. Yeah. And that's where non-coercive love comes right into play. Just being with people where they're at, the Rogerian sort of unconditional positive regard, empathy, and congruence, and just full acceptance. Can we as spiritual directors and therapists, and that's the hard part when we, I, I think they should be somewhere else, but can I truly accept them where they are at? It's a, it's, it's can be a challenge. And that's where we have to be connected to non-coercive love to exude uh, that kind of atmosphere of non-coercive love.